Okay, well, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. That's on page 856, if you have the Pew Bibles. Again, there is an outline printed on the inside of your, the insert there in the worship guide. If you want to follow along and take notes. Well, last week I went to get the oil changed in my car, and I love going to get my oil changed. It is one of those experiences that is just amazing to see. You get this group of people who come together who, you know, I don't know how much all of them are actually experts in what they do, but they all come together and they're all like working on your car at the same time, right? They're like, they're checking the tire pressure, they're checking all your fluids, they're pulling out filters and bringing them to you and trying to convince you that you need to buy their like $150 new filter, But then they come back with this however many point, you know, 30 point inspection, right? This diagnostic list and they explain to you all these things. And it's basically the health of your car, right? Or the the health of whatever vehicle you're bringing in. And they're, they're giving you this diagnostic test. Well, this morning as we come to God's word, I want us to do a little diagnostic work on our own hearts. When we think about our hearts, okay, we don't think about fluid, well maybe we think about fluid, we don't think about like brake fluid and tire pressure, right, and air filters, but what types of words come to our mind when we think about diagnosing the state of our hearts? Love, desire, longing, worship. I quoted earlier from James Smith's book, You Are What You Love, and again I would commend that book to you. In the preface to that book, he says, you need to worship well because you are what you love and you worship what you love and you might not love what you think, which raises an important question. Let's dare to ask it. And he starts chapter one with the question, what do you want? That is the question of our hearts. What do you want? What is it that you're really longing for? Let's unpack this a little bit. He says we need to worship well. I think we can all agree on that, can't we? We need to worship well. But then we have to ask the question, why? And he says, he gives us the answer, it's because you are what you love. And you worship what you love. So we need to worship well because we worship what we love. Whether it's time Money, thoughts of just desires of our hearts, those things are directed towards the things that we love. And our true allegiances come out when we think about those things. And then he hits us where it hurts. He says, you might not love what you think. And this is why this diagnostic test that we need to do on our hearts is so important. The reality that we all face is we need to be constantly renewed by the Lord in our hearts and in our minds because we don't love what we think. This season of Advent, Advent we're going to be kind of banging this drum over the next several weeks. It is, the, it is a great time of year to ask the question that Smith dares us to ask. What do you want? And I'm not talking about what do you want for Christmas, right? I'm not talking about gifts not talking about wanting to be around family or not wanting to be around family. That's certainly a part of it. 
But what is your heart ultimately longing for? He goes on to say, you can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. He says, you are what you love is synonymous with saying, you are what you worship. You are what you love is synonymous with saying, you are what you worship. So if we are what we worship, then how are we doing? Is God ultimate in our lives? Or have we substituted him with cheap replacements? We're going to explore these questions this morning as we look at two songs of praise from two women who knew a little something about worship. The last two weeks we've seen the births of John the Baptist and Jesus foretold by the angel Gabriel. Now the soon-to-be mothers, they meet face-to-face and they worship God together. Let's take a look at these beautiful songs as Elizabeth and Mary meet face-to-face. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're following along on the outline there, we're going to look at these two songs. The first song is Elizabeth's Spirit-Fueled, Joy-Filled, Faith-Blessing Song of Praise. Just before this, Mary has been told by Gabriel that she is going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, and she is going to give birth to the Son of God. She's also told that her relative Elizabeth, who is old and barren, is pregnant with a son, who was old and barren, is pregnant with a son. So we're introduced here to these two miraculous pregnancies. After this, Mary hightails it to go and visit 
Elizabeth. This is about a 70-mile journey. I want us to observe now the amazing expressiveness in this interaction between Mary and Elizabeth. In verse 41, John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb when Mary greets her. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a spirit-fueled encounter. We saw earlier in chapter 1 that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and that he would prepare the way for the Lord. This is in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, the very end of the Old Testament, talking about how he would turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to their children. There is this generational emphasis that we'll see later on in Mary's song of praise. But what's going on here with John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb, which she says later that he leaped for joy, which is what this word here, leaping, means. It's, just, it's one word. It's just a verb for leaping, but it means leaping for joy, which they translate fully out in verse 44. Joel Green, in his commentary, says, he says, even from the womb, John the Baptist, he prophesies, implicitly transferring the designation of Lord to Mary's unborn baby, recognizing in this baby the eschatological coming of God, the end times, the second advent, right, coming of God. So Green is saying here, John the Baptist in the womb is prophesying that Jesus is going to be the Lord who is going to come again one day to set up his kingdom. This is an awesome truth as we celebrate Advent. The Holy Spirit speaks through John and through Elizabeth to acknowledge the coming of the Savior into the world. I think the crazy thing about this is that it would be another 30 years until John would publicly declare, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? So, as, an inf- as a not even born baby yet, in the womb, John the Baptist, Green is saying, and I agree with him, he already knows who Jesus is, Right? And his leaping is a prophetic declaration of who Jesus is. But it would be a whole other 30 years until he actually publicly in his ministry would go out and declare, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a beautiful foretaste for Mary and Elizabeth. Right? It's going to be another 30 years until these things really kind of start to come to fruition. But they get a little insight here into what is going to unfold over the next 30 years. The next thing we see is that this is a joy-filled encounter. In verse 42, it says, Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry. Don't miss the excitement in this passage. It's easy to just read through this. As I was was thinking about preparing for this, this passage, I was like, okay, verses 39 to 45, right? Elizabeth and Mary meet, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to focus on Mary's song. Well, then I start digging into it, and I'm like, man, this is awesome. Like, there's all this emotion. There's all this excitement. That's, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and God is doing all these amazing things. And Elizabeth is literally just shouting for joy because of what God is up to. I say this quite a bit, and I, I, I say it to myself mainly, but I also encourage to you. We need to slow down, right? In reading our Bibles, we need to slow down and not miss the details, because these are very important details. It's easy to just, oh yeah, the Christmas story, right? We read Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, and it's just kind of like, okay, I've heard this before. 
But there's so much here. We need to dig in. We need to mine the scriptures. We need to see these things. We need to appreciate what's happening and glean from them. This is not just some ho-hum meeting between Mary and Elizabeth. It's not like, here we go again, just another Christmas season, right? We have to talk about the birth of Jesus like we always do. What if we were this excited and this filled with joy as we ponder the magnitude of what is happening year in and year out? What if we don't just say, well, just Christmas again, right? I'm not sure if it's because as Protestants we're anxious when we're talking about Mary, right? Maybe that's why we kind of like shy away from some of this stuff. But that's our problem, okay? That's not the Bible's problem. Elizabeth says that Mary is the most blessed among all women. And to that I say, amen. And blessed is the fruit of her womb, Jesus. Again I say, amen. Elizabeth then tells Mary in in Elizabeth's little song of praise here, she tells her that John leaped for joy in her womb. And she ends this song by declaring that Mary is blessed because of her faith because she believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. James talked about this last week. The focus here is not dare to be a Mary. We can't birth the Son of God, okay? That was a one-time, non-replicable event. And I don't think the application for us today is some like weird incarnational you know, philosophy where we're like, we're going to become Mary and like birth Jesus into the world, which I've heard crazy stuff about that, okay? That's not what this is about, okay? We're not to like try to emulate Mary in some weird way like that. But it doesn't mean that we can't learn something and even emulate her here for her faith. She believed that the Lord would fulfill the promises that he had spoken to her. And that is speaking about the first advent. And that was completed. God did those things. But how does that relate to us? Has the Lord not spoken to us as well in his written word about the second advent? About the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I don't know about you, but for me, I think this might be the hardest part of the Christian life. Right? It's, I think it's easy to look back and say, yeah, like... Of course we believe Jesus came and he he lived and he died, right? And he he rose again. But is he really coming back? I mean, I look around me and the way the world is and just all these things, it just doesn't really feel like it's true, right? It feels like it's, I mean, it's been 2,000 years, right? Like, have we just been, have we just been deceived? Like, is all this just a big game? I mean, it's crazy, right? Like, Believing, it's, I feel like it's easier to believe that the Son of God came into the world, lived, died, rose again, ascended into heaven, but is he really coming back? Like, this is a huge test of our faith, isn't it? The way we live our day-to-day lives needs to be informed by this. It needs to be informed by this future-looking faith and saying, I'm living my life believing that he's really coming back. And that's really, really hard. I don't even know where I'm at in my notes. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, it's easy to feel stuck, right? 
I think the, the people in the first century, I think they felt stuck, right? The Jews felt stuck. They're, they're occupied by, by Romans. They have these promises of God's deliverance, and it's 400 years of silence, right? Like, what's happening? So there's a good, there's a good precedent there. Okay, brothers and sisters, this longing, again, this is part of what keeps us coming back for more. Our worship needs to be highly motivated by the longing and the seeking for thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For the finality of the struggle that we're living in. For the day when we will leap for joy because our faith has been turned to sight. Again, this is what Advent is all about. It's not that we don't think about these things throughout the rest of the year, but how much more over these next several weeks as we worship and as we anticipate, look back to the first coming and anticipate the second coming of Jesus. So that's Elizabeth's song, okay? That's her song of praise. Let's take a look now at how Mary responds to Elizabeth's song of praise as she sings her own song of praise. We're going to see Mary's scripture-saturated, God-magnifying, generation-focused, history-remembering song of praise. There is so much in here. Uh, There are a lot of different ways that we could approach this. But the first thing I want to look at is this idea that Mary's song is a scripture-saturated song. It is clear from reading this that Mary knew her Bible. She knew her scriptures well. Every verse in this, if you have a Bible with cross-references, I would encourage you just to go through and look up some of these verses. Every verse here is a direct reference to the Old Testament. Mostly in the Psalms. Uh, Some of them are from Isaiah, some from Job. Uh, Obviously Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, which we already looked at. And the other three parts of this heading that her song is God-magnifying, generation-focused, and history-remembering, all of those things are informed by her devotion to God and to the Scriptures, okay? So as much as we emphasize the centrality of corporate worship in the Christian life, the need to gather together, and, and rightfully so, we don't do so over and against the need for private worship and devotion, And that's something that, if we're honest, we could probably all use a little bit of help with, myself included. If you've been around here very long, you know that my favorite pastor theologian is J.C. Ryle. Okay, I named my kid after him. J.C. Ryle wrote commentaries on all four Gospels. Not as an academic writing for seminary students. Okay, I got these big, like, honking commentaries. There's a commentary set on Luke that's literally, like, this wide, right? Right? 2,000 pages. It's written by an academic for seminary students, right? It can be a little dry. I mean, it's good information, but you're not reading it devotionally. J.C. Ryle wrote as a pastor. He wrote this for his congregation. It's so pastoral. That's why I love reading these because it's not just like, I'm not just reading information. I'm not just reading all this like in-depth stuff about Greek words. He's writing so pastorally. Listen to the conclusion. He wrote, he wrote these commentaries over like a 17-year period for many different reasons. He buried two of his wives and had to raise five children on his own for a while. And it took him a while to finish this. But 
This was, uh, this was in August of 1858. This is the preface to his Luke commentary. Listen to what he says. I have a strong conviction that we want more reverent, deep-searching study of the scriptures in the present day. Most of Christians see nothing beyond the surface of the Bible when they read it. We want a more clear knowledge of Christ as a living person, a living priest, a living physician, a living friend, a living advocate at the right hand of God, and a living Savior soon about to come again. Most of Christians know little of Christianity but its skeleton of doctrines. I desire never to forget these two things. If I can do anything to make Christ and the Bible more honorable in these latter days, I shall be truly thankful and content. And I want that to be my desire too. If I can make Christ and the Bible more honorable in these days, I will be content. This is, I read that because it's very much related to his comments that he makes on Mary and how she was well acquainted with the scriptures. Again, something that we should all seek to imitate. Listen to what he says. Let us strive every year we live to become more deeply acquainted with Scripture. Let us study it, search it, dig into it, meditate on it until it dwell in us richly. In particular, let us labor to make ourselves familiar with those parts of the Bible which, like the book of Psalms, describe the experience of the saints of old. We shall find it most helpful to us in all our approaches to God. It will supply us with the best and most suitable language, both for the expression of our wants and thanksgivings. Such knowledge of the Bible can doubtless never be attained without regular daily study. But the time spent on such study is never misspent. It will bear fruit after many days. Right? It will bear fruit after many days. Doesn't mean immediately, right? It takes work. And I want to encourage you and challenge you as 2020 approaches not to neglect the regular study of God's word. There are many different reading programs that you can do. You can look them up online. If you want some advice, you can talk to me about it. Um, you can read straight through your Bible, right? And just read until you, until you finish it. doesn't matter if it takes you more than a year. That's okay. Uh, the, the Robert Murray McShane reading plan is a great plan if you want to set aside a little more time. You read through the Old Testament once and then New Testament and Psalms twice. It's a lot of reading. It's about four different sections each day, but it's really rich and it really takes you through all of scripture in a, in a very, very good way. Uh, something I did this year, so I actually, um, I read through the Gospel of John from about January through September very slowly, like kind of reading about a paragraph at a time. And I used, uh, so this is the, the like seven volume set of Ryle's Gospels commentaries has been condensed into this daily reading. So there's a morning and an evening reading. Uh, the morning readings go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the evening readings go through John. So there's, there's an entire year. Uh, if you, you could follow this and go through John, I, I just went a little bit faster than he went. Um, but it was great to really slow down and kind of dig in a little bit deeper. So that's something uh, to consider. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a devotional that you're currently using, uh, that's a great one. I would love it if you 
fell in love with Ryle's writings, uh, I, would, I would feel, next to helping you love Christ and love the Bible more, um, I would be honored if you fell in love with J.C. Ryle's writings. But again, the goal in all of this is not just to say, man, I did it, right? Checked off the box, I'm good to go. Again, what did he say? It's going to bear fruit after many days, right? The goal is to be more acquainted with the scriptures so that our singing and our praying and our conversations with one another are seasoned with the truth of God's word, just like they were for Mary. So let's look a little more closely, now that we've kind of talked about that, let's look a little more closely at some of the other elements of her song. Her song is God-magnifying. It starts with her magnifying and rejoicing in the Lord, her Savior. Why does she say, God, my Savior? It's because she was a sinner just like us who had the need for a Savior. She acknowledges this as she calls herself the humble servant of the Lord. When she says that all generations will call me blessed in verse 48, she's not She's not sticking out her chest and patting herself on the back, right? She, she's acknowledging, just as Elizabeth acknowledged and declared that Mary was, would bless, was blessed. She's saying, this is, this is true. This is what God has done for me. And throughout the ages, Christians, including us, are to say these same things. Blessed are you among women. If you look in your, in your Bible, in the heading there, in the ESV, it says Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. The Magnificat comes from the Latin word for magnify, which Mary says there, my soul magnifies the Lord. And it has had a prominent place in the worship of the church throughout church history. In the Anglican Church, in the Book of Common Prayer, the Magnificat is read every evening in the daily worship services in the church, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, they recite the Magnificat and Simeon's Prayer, which is in chapter 2, which we'll see in a few weeks. Again, this is not the elevation of Mary as the fourth person of the Trinity, or saying that Mary, we're asking Mary to, to intercede for us. But it is recognizing her favored status and her own humility as she confesses her need for a Savior. So the emphasis of Mary's song, it's on the Lord. It's not on Mary herself. That was the emphasis of Elizabeth's song too. It was really on the Lord. It talked about Mary, but it was, it was focused on the Lord. In verse 49, we see this focus on the Lord. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary acknowledges herself here as the passive recipient of God's mercy and grace. He has done great things. And she says in verse 49, holy is his name. She acknowledges the holiness of God. That means that God is set apart, that he's other, that he is not like us. He's perfect. He's not sinful like we are. And when we see him in his holiness, when we are confronted with him as a holy God, we see our need for a savior. We see that we cannot approach him on our own. We cannot come before him with the, our, our hands stained with sin. Again, she magnifies the Lord for his mercy in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
She points here to the third element of the song, and that is that it is a generation-focused song. Again, this generation-focused part of her song comes from her being well acquainted with the scriptures. It is faith in a God who will keep his covenant promises to his people. These are promises that are rooted in God's sovereign choosing of those who belong to him. This promise was made to Abraham, as Mary says in verse 55. God has remembered his mercy and helped his servant Israel, as she says in verse 54. And these promises are stated clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen for some of the common themes with Mary's song that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 14. This is God speaking to the people of Israel. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured, treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their faith to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. It is these blessings that Mary recalls in verses 51 to 53 in the history remembering part of her song. Mary recalls what the Lord has done on behalf of his people. Again, we just saw this in Deuteronomy 7, especially verses 7 and 8. I'll reread those. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. His mighty hand that Deuteronomy 7 is talking about is the same thing as we see here in verse 51, that he has shown strength with his arm. This is talking about God's deliverance of the people out of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. So how did God show strength with his arm? First, by scattering the proud. See that in verse 51. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Second, by bringing down the mighty from their thrones, in verse 52. And then, sending the rich away empty, in verse 53. 
Again, Joel Green in his commentary, he points out that the coupling of the proud, powerful, and rich anticipates a major theme in Luke's narrative. Okay, we need to, we need to get ready for this. He says, the opponents of Jesus, and therefore of God's purpose, are portrayed as persons who grasp for social respect and positions of honor, who exclude the less fortunate and socially unacceptable from their circles of kinship, who enjoy the power that accompanies their privileged status. Over against such persons, the proud and the powerful and the rich, Mary's song places the lowly and the hungry. Set in this context, these people are not simply the unfortunate, those for whom life in general has not been kind. Now listen to this. This is so important. He says, The powerful and privileged oppose God, and in doing so, oppress other people. Similarly, God's powerful opposition to the proud, powerful, and rich is at the same time gracious activity on behalf of the lowly and hungry. And we have to understand this as we go through Luke's gospel. It is actually vital to our whole understanding of the story of redemptive history. The Old Testament was not about some angry God who just went around zapping people when he was mad at them. And then Jesus comes on the scene and just sits around the fire holding hands and singing Kumbaya. That's not what the scriptures are about. Again, Green points out that Mary's song talks about the Lord as the divine warrior who fights for and delivers his people, but who at the same time is the merciful God of the covenant. And we have to be able to hold these two things in tension. Okay? I know sometimes we read the Old Testament, we're just like, man, like, God is so, like, right? And then we're like, okay, I can't wait till I get to the New Testament. But that's not how we're supposed to read the Bibles, okay? Our Bibles. we got to hold these things in tension. That God is the divine warrior who fights for his people and he's going to judge his enemies, right? But at the same time, he is the God who has made promises to his people and he is merciful and gracious. We're going to sing about it in Psalm 103 at the end. But is this not what we see in Jesus? He is the divine warrior king who came to fight for his people. Not with swords and clubs. Do you remember what he told Peter after Peter cut off the ear of the high priest's servant? Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's 60,000 angels, okay? That's the population of this city in angels. I know some stories in the Old Testament where it only took one angel to wipe out a whole army, okay? 60,000 angels. Jesus saying, if you want me to bring it, Peter, I can bring it, right? But Jesus didn't need angels to fight for him. He himself fought for us. He won the war against sin and death and Satan by doing what no one could have fathomed. He laid down his own life when he went to the cross. And he went down without a physical fight, without even lifting a finger. You remember how he answered Pilate when Pilate asked him about being a king? My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. This is why I said we need to live in this tension of the divine warrior king and the merciful God of the covenant. Because nobody saw this coming. They didn't have any box to put Jesus in. And neither do we. He is the divine warrior king who is victorious over all his and our enemies. He actually defeats his enemies so that he can save them. And he is the merciful God of the covenant, the suffering servant who fulfilled all the demands of the law by living a perfect life that we could never live. This was the mighty God of the universe, conceived in the womb of a virgin in a podunk town in Judah. Again, nobody saw this coming. And then the Holy Spirit directs John the Baptist to leap for joy in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth and Mary sing these songs of praise to God for who he is and how he has been faithful to the promises that he made to his people generations and generations ago. And this exuberant meeting of these two unlikely mothers is recorded here for us so that we might do a little heart diagnosis as we sit here 2,000 years later. So what about us? Will we worship him? Will we recount his faithfulness? Will we look forward to his coming again? And live lives that suggest to the lost and broken and confused world around us that it's really true? That we really believe he's coming again? That we don't, we're not just living in the past, right? We're not just saying, well, something happened a long time ago and we think it's true and ho-hum, here we are. No, we're living with expectation and longing that he's coming again. If we are what we worship then what are we? We all have a chance to answer that question this morning as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. This is not a table for for only those who are are members here at Living Stone or, or Presbyterians. This is for anyone who says, yeah, I want to be someone who worships Jesus and lives my life for Jesus. James mentioned it earlier in the service talk about it a lot here. When we come to this table, it is a looking back, right? It is remembering what the Lord has done, but it is also a looking forward, right? We talk about proclaiming his death until he comes as we eat and as we drink. So this, this kind of tension that we feel in Advent, right, of looking back and looking forward, we get to participate in that. We get to show a picture of that as we come to the Lord's table this morning. And it is for those who, like Mary and like Elizabeth, said, this is my Lord, and I need a Savior. So if you have trusted in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, you are welcome to come to this table. 